you know, the people that we've covered uh, in this list so far, um, they're all people that have died essentially by accident. People who um, took drug combinations uh, and perhaps, perhaps weren't realizing what they were doing. Um, but none of these deaths actually were registered as, as deaths that were, that were predetermined and conducted at least with thought into it. Um, which is why Kurt Cobain still has such a legacy um, and why his death intrigues, I think, more than anybody else on this list. Um, it makes him the most unique member of the 27 Club because he was a person whose death, because it was a suicide, colored his work in ways that was very dissimilar to any of the other people on the list. Um, on top of it, his is arguably the most enduring legacy in music um, ever since... Uh, Nevermind took the number one spot on the Billboard 200. His music kickstarted so many different trends in rock music that are still going on right now. You know, the the ill-fated grunge and post-grunge movements, um, new metal hitting afterwards, which soon gave birth to the rise of indie rock, which still is prevalent nowadays. Um, so many underground bands flourishing. Um, you know, it would have existed, I think, before it, but it helped give that kind of music national attention. And a lot of that wouldn't have been possible without him being in that um, precarious spot. And again, I think it would have broke at any point. You know, He was just sort of the guy that made it happen. But I think he struggled up until his death with, with knowing that his was just one of so many bands that were doing the, the same exact thing that he was doing. Maybe that's just him not letting his ego get in the way. But... Uh, you can tell that Kurt exerted intense pressure on himself. Part of it was growing up in the Olympia and Seattle music scenes and sort of knowing that there is this implicit focus on honest and in- honesty and integrity and making sure that you appeal to the people who are the underdogs, people who are eternally misunderstood. Um, so And also, there was intense pressure on himself to make sure that he didn't fuck it up. And the biggest example of this is, if you've ever listened to their Live at Reading 1992 um, performance, which is widely considered to be one of their uh, most iconic performances, you know, which that, that remains to be seen, but there's a part where he starts playing All Apologies, and it comes right before he he forces the crowd to to send a love message to Courtney because she was experiencing some really bad stuff at that time where they kick into the song and bear in mind this is a song that nobody has listened to before yet because this was around the time that Nevermind was still on the charts and he fucks up the second verse really hard you can tell especially if you're if you're watching it for the first time like he gets the lyrics wrong and he just it, it just freezes like you can see that he is terrified that he that he screws the song up and he starts getting demoralized and you can see it like it happens a lot it happens to every rock musician that goes through a bad night and that particular night had some very harrowing circumstances that we'll get into a little later but Cobain was the type of guy that that wanted himself he he put expectations on himself more than anybody else you know and being in the situation where all of a sudden people were telling you that you were the the spokesman of a generation and that all all eyes were on you, especially considering what was going on around the time with him and Courtney. Um, it 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 makes his death understandable, even if it is one of those things where it's so violent and so out of out of place and uh, and so strange, considering what he was doing at the time. That that 
it's still talked about and analyzed even to this day. So his death was was considering what was what the scene was and where he died and and the role in which he died. It was several different things. To the cynical P and W scene, it was an apparent warning sign that this is why it was a confirmation that this is why you don't seek fame and fortune. This is why you stay on the fringe. Um, to a lot of budding naive musicians who want fame and fortune, it's very alluring to think about an artist that was misunderstood and all he wanted to do was was be the underdog and then have the weight of the world on your shoulders. It's one of those things where if you really truly think about it and if you've ever been under those circumstances, of course you wouldn't want it, but it helps. I think a lot of artists were inspired by that, you know, and that maybe maybe people don't want to admit it, but, you know, his is a, is a fascinating case. And, you know, besides the fact that there's also the gritty sensationalist drama behind his drug use and his controversial relationship with Courtney Love, his existence in the early 90s, we, this is the first death where we get into recording, video recording technologies and audio recording technologies are getting advanced so much so that his life and his death are archived so fervently that there's no shortage of information about this guy. Like, you could, you could go down the rabbit hole about little different facets of his life to the point where it's almost a little sickening, you know, especially once his journals came out. So this is a guy who you can you can talk a lot about. So this episode's going to be perhaps a little longer than the others, specifically because since this is a Seattle-based podcast and um, his music has been so influential in the scene and, and helped give Seattle a bit of a presence and his ghost still lingers within that scene, um, whether or not people acknowledge it or not, um, we'll go a little bit more in detail about Cobain and um, and his life and his death. So... Cobain was born in uh, a town called Aberdeen, um, which is uh, on the coast near the Sound. It's uh, it's one of those towns that was stricken with poverty when Cobain was growing up in the late 60s and early 70s because um, the logging business had just sort of called it quits there. Um, it used to be very profitable. There was a really big mill that people used to operate in, um, but they were experiencing some hard times, and it was just a really awful place to grow up in. Um, a lot of rednecks, a lot of trailers, um, not a lot of money coming into that town. Cobain was one of those people that grew up with at least a little bit of money, considerable, like, relative middle class. Um, he had a lot of musical interests as a young kid. He was youthful, kind of slightly rebellious, but overall he had a, a, a zest for life that you wouldn't see in him anywhere else after age nine, which is when his parents got divorced. Uh, this divorce, according to a lot of people close to him, and according to him specifically, it affected his personality greatly. Um, it also came at a time when he was reaching adolescence, and it caused him to become withdrawn, um, a lot more rebellious, more of a punk, a problem child. He actually became a little bit of a childhood bully as well when he was growing up. Uh, and then, he, familiarly, he just sort of witnessed a bunch of traumatic events happening to himself as a uh, his father said he wouldn't remarry, and then he did remarry, and he had three more children, and that further alienated him. His mom started dating an abusive man, uh, and the man would be violent towards his mother in front of Kurt. There was a time when she was sent to the ER with a broken arm, and that caused him to be very distrustful of men in general. Um, his parents let him see a therapist, and they recommended a single-parent family, so Cobain was moved frequently between his parents. It didn't help his waywardness at all. Um... He had a bunch of extracurricular activities. He joined a wrestling team for the sole purpose of pissing off his father. 
Um, there was an old story where he befriended an openly gay classmate, and uh, he ended up getting shit from that. So he decided not to friend him anymore. You know, an unfortunate occurrence. But um, his first concert, according to his friends and family, was Sammy Hager and Quarter Flash at the Seattle Center Coliseum. But according to Cobain, his first concert was the Melvins. And I guess that makes sense. Like, you would want to own your punk heritage, and maybe, maybe the first concert to perhaps move you was a concert by such an influential punk band. Um, in fact, the Melvins were so influential on him that he began hanging out at their practice space because that's what a lot of punk bands used to do in Seattle, specifically the Melvins in general. The Melvins had a little bit of a cult around them, um, and Buzz Osborne and um, and uh, Dale Crover and uh, a bunch of people that were in the band, they would have their own little house where they would practice and then a bunch of stoners and potheads and generally considered losers, they would hang around the Melvins practice space. They would be called, uh, the Melvins called them the Klingons. And uh, Kurt was one of them, specifically because he just wanted to sort of form a band with people. Um, he practiced guitar when he was a teenager. He started to form his own sort of melodic vocabulary, um, even though he secretly loved bands like Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin, the typical metal. Um, he listened to a lot of Beatles and Rolling Stones, when he was a kid and that sort of melodicism would end up leaking into his work later on it's also around this time when he was hanging out with the melvins that he he started doing drugs specifically heroin um one of the guys that used to hang around with the, the melvins was this sort of despicable guy named grunt um the reason people hung out with this guy was because he could get you any drug you wanted and um kurt had done a whole bunch of stuff and uh there was one night where grunt and him did heroin together for the first time which was initially scary to Kurt, but he just liked the allure of it. Iggy Pop was one of his heroes, his musical heroes, and he had done heroin, so that usually is what gets you to sort of want to do it as you look up to someone, and then they're like, well, that didn't seem too bad. He also just loved the allure of it. You know, when you're in a punk, boring town like Aberdeen, you know, you just sort of want to do anything to stave off the boredom. So he did heroin, and then he quit. And the problem with doing heroin for the first time is that the moment you do it, it doesn't matter how little you've done or how infrequently you do it. It's such a powerful opiate that you have, you're fighting your whole life not to want to do it again. And so this is a struggle that Kurt would be fighting up until his death. And this is a common case that we've seen in a whole bunch of uh, people on this list who have also done that drug. You know, it's so seductive. Um, and if you're too young to know any better and you don't have enough role models you'll be fighting it for your entire life so uh later just before he was going to graduate high school weeks before he decided to drop out because he realized he didn't have enough credits because he um skipped a bunch of classes and at that point his mom was like well you either need to get a job or i'm kicking you out of the house and his kurt didn't take his mom seriously and then a week later his mom was like, all right, I'm putting your stuff in boxes and you're leaving. And so Kurt bounced around places. Um, there's an old story where he claimed he lived under the Wishkaw River. In fact, there was the very first live uh, compilation that came out after Nirvana ended and Kurt killed himself uh, was called From the Muddy Banks of the Wishkaw. Chris later confirmed that, that it was an exaggerated story because there's literally no way to live under the Wishkaw River because the tides go too high up above the bridge. So he would hang around his uh, friends' places and occasionally sneak into his mother's basement. His aspiration was to be a musician, and uh, until he formed Nirvana, he really didn't have a lot of success finding other people. 
he did convince Melvin's drummer Dale Crover to record a demo called Fecal Matter, which had a bunch of songs that were kind of embryonic, sort of what he would be writing when he was in Nirvana. Not a lot of success until he started hanging out and reacquainting himself with Chris Novoselic, who was a classmate of his at high school. Eventually, it took months to persuade him to play together, but eventually they started forming Nirvana. This was when they started having a rotating list of drummers. Um, I believe their first real drummer was this guy named Aaron Burkhart, and they played uh, a whole bunch of shows. Uh, their first one was at a house party in Olympia. They started playing several colleges, several parties, you know, just general, general first stuff you do in a band things, you know. Kurt wanted to take it, he wanted to take it real fast, but he knew that he was like, we got to play shows, we got to do these things, you know. Um, eventually, he would start dating this girl named um, Tracy Miranda, and he moved into her place in Olympia. And Olympia's punk scene really got into his spirit, you know, it allowed him to be more creative, you know, he felt like he was among people that that he respected and people who sort of understood him as an artistic person. Um, he was really influenced by K Records um, and uh, the Riot Girl movement was, was uh, huge to him. In fact, he dated one of the members of Bikini Kill um, after he started dating Tracy and her name was Toby Vale. Um, but until then, he was still playing shows with Nirvana with a rotating list of drummers. Um, first it was Aaron Burkhart, then it was um, more shows with Dale Crover, there was a guy named Dave Foster who joined them. Um, none of them really worked out, and then they settled on a guy from Bainbridge Island named uh, Chad Channing. And they decided to record their very first demo, Sub Pop, which was a burgeoning label at the time. It was uh, founded by Bruce Pavitt and John Poneman. Poneman heard the demo and immediately was like, we got to get on these guys. Um, but not a lot of the people, the tastemakers, shall we say, in that circle wanted to sign them just yet. Um, just before signing, when they were doing more tours and getting a little bigger, Kurt started experiencing uh, this chronic, intense, unidentifiable stomach pain. This was chronic pain that he dealt with for his entire life. And the doctors that he would see would not be able to figure out what was going on inside him. Um, there were several cases, um, perhaps it was some kind of chronic ulcer. There was one doctor that speculated that it was a pinched nerve, um, coming from latent scoliosis. Um, it's possible it could have been in his head, you know, psychosomatic, uh, pain like that can indeed happen, but whatever the case, um, it was causing Kurt a ton of grief and, um, causing him to be even more sullen and withdrawn. They kept doing it. That's what happens when you're when you're an aspiring band. You kept you keep pushing on. You keep doing tours. You keep your music just gets out. They started to get more and more popular, especially among the underground scene. And finally, they decided to sign with Sub Pop. They were on the very first Sub Pop 200. This would be one of the first bands that would catapult Sub Pop into a sort of what they're known as now as a, a legendary underground uh, indie label. Maybe not indie at this point, but they're definitely up there. And eventually they started to record their very first LP, which was called Bleach, the guy named Jack and Dino. Uh, the album was named after the anti-ads campaigns they would see on tour where um, they were warning people to sterilize their needles with bleach. They sort of liked that image. The recording cost just over $600 and was paid for by a guy named Jason Everman, who they later added to the band. 
The album sold way better than expected, and that prompted an even bigger wave of newfound underground fame. More tours commenced, um, and this included a, uh, a now legendary, maybe not legendary to the people, but people who knew Nirvana back then, especially the people who worked at Sub Pop back then. It was sort of a, a, a legendary tour to them with uh, the band Tad, which had also signed to the label, uh, led by a guy named Tad Doyle. Uh, this tour went extremely poorly. Tad Doyle had constant gastrointestinal issues. They would pull over constantly so he could throw up. Um, they were getting no sleep because it was a crappy tour bus and uh, they had to sleep sitting up. It was a grueling pace. They played 36 shows in 42 days. No one was getting any sleep. By the end of the tour, when they were playing in Rome, Kurt had a full-on nervous breakdown. Halfway through the show, he started climbing on amps. Um, he started swinging from the rafters. Not a lot of the crowd could see this. It was all sort of going on backstage. He was swinging from the rafters. People backstage were trying to get him to come down. Uh, he broke microphones. He was just like at his wits end, pulling his hair out. He talked to Ponyman and he was like, he wanted to quit the tour and the band. He was like, I can't take it anymore. Like I'm, I'm getting no sleep. I'm, I'm a wreck. Like this sucks. You guys suck. And, uh, According to Kurt, Poneman's first words after he said that was like, well, we still have continued interest with you as a solo act. The following show, all of Kurt's belongings were stolen on a train while he was asleep, including his passport. It was just a disastrous moment. He survived it eventually, but it was one of those things where they sort of had to reconsider what exactly they were doing and to control their tours more often. So at this point, Bleach was selling really well, but Sub Pop was doing a poor job distributing it. Um, because they were an ambitious label and they had sort of the label speak going on. They were schmoozing a lot of local bands, but essentially they were signing a band a week and they owed money to pretty much everybody in the city. Um, Nirvana knew the label was about to go under, so they, they finally considered doing a major label switch, was, which at the time was still relatively unheard of. The people that inspired them to do the switch um, were their friends in uh, Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon. Um, when they decided to go major label in 1990, earlier in 1991, um, they decided to um, be signed to Gold Mountain Records, which is a subsidiary of uh, Geffen. And Kim Gordon um, told Kurt, you know, we, this worked out for us. We think it'll work out for you. And anything that Sonic Youth did at that point was cool to the underground. So Kurt was like, and the band, they, they were like, we'll do it. We'll sign to a major label and then whatever happens, happens. Kurt obviously had higher aspirations for his music, despite what he claimed about staying in the underground. And, you know, he was thinking maybe if we sign to a major label, other bands that deserve attention will get signed to a major label. I think outwardly he claimed he had good intentions for doing it, you know. Um, so they were about to record their next album, Nevermind. And at this point, both Kurt and Chris were getting a little unhappy with Chad's playing they claimed that he just didn't hit the drums hard enough. Their sound just were not letting them get to the next level. Even though uh, after Dave Grohl joined the band, Dave Grohl just ended up playing a lot of Chad Channing's parts. Um, and this is evident in the Smart Sessions, which came out in a deluxe edition of Nevermind back in 2011. Speaking of Dave Grohl, they met him at a Scream show. That was the punk band that Dave Grohl played in uh, before he joined Nirvana. They loved his playing and they offered him a spot in the band. Grohl really couldn't turn it down, so Grohl ended up moving from Virginia, 
being itinerant with the band. He ended up moving to Washington and eventually ended up living with Cobain in a really crappy apartment together. Grohl claims that this was one of the most disgusting parts of his life. According to him, they were knee-deep in corn dog sticks. He had to sleep in on a five-foot couch, and he's a tall guy. Um, he had to sleep in the same room with Kurt's turtles. He kept turtles uh, in his room, and he would hear the glass clink. And uh, essentially, Grohl and Cobain just did nothing but sit in their room and like stare at walls or like they would only stay up at night and then sleep during the day they would shoot a bb gun sometimes they'd go out and get food it was kind of a taciturn relationship eventually they warmed up to each other and the chemistry really started forming they recorded all the parts for nevermind um which they recorded with bruce uh, butch vig and later recorded with andy wallace and they sort of knew and the management sort of knew that they were like, if we work hard, if we all work hard and do our best and we kill the shows and we, we, we do as much as we can, eventually perhaps we'll have a gold record with this. They were super optimistic about it. Um, of course, later, Cobain would express his dissatisfaction with the sound because when you listen to the album nowadays, it has a very accessible sheen to it. It's not necessarily a punk record relatively nowadays. It's definitely more of, I mean, Nirvana are sort of considered classic rock, especially because of how influential they ended up becoming. Um, but it is one of those sounds where, where Cobain had those intentions, but he didn't know how to get them across at that point. So he wasn't terribly happy with that sound at that point. The band started a tour with Sonic Youth, and that is probably the happiest that Cobain has ever been on tour. He sort of expressed it himself. Bands who are about to hit it big but haven't hit it big yet, where there's just all this limitless potential and you feel like you can't be stopped. That's sort of the best moment. And that was documented in an amazing documentary called 1991, The Year Punk Broke, which I should absolutely recommend. I actually recommend uh, checking that out. It was during that tour that he started getting closer and closer to this woman named Courtney Love. And Courtney Love would play a huge part in Cobain's last moments and in the last few years of his life. Um... For those who don't know Courtney Love, she was, and I assume, how would you not know? She was born in San Francisco to parents who were part of the counterculture. She had a really rough childhood. They were itinerant. Um, even though they had money, she attended a boarding school when she got kicked out because uh, she was a rebellious individual. She moved to Japan when she was 15 and started stripping for the first time. Later in her life, she would do more stripping to get money. She started playing in punk rock bands. She tried her hand at acting. She played a small part in a, in a biopic about Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. She was a generally self-destructive individual. Um, but, you know, that was just the punk spirit. Like, a lot of punks were like that at the time. Um, before she started dating Cobain, she started uh, dating Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, which I think a lot of people didn't understand why, you know, because that band was generally not considered punk at the time. Uh, but when Nirvana were on tour with Sonic Youth, that's when Love all of a sudden started getting invited to the shows and Cobain would invite her. She'd be backstage. They had an undeniable chemistry, is what a lot of people believed, especially according to Cobain and Love themselves. There was this moment backstage where somebody accidentally threw a bottle of oil and it hit Courtney and it got all over herself and she was reminded of when she was bullied in high school and she ran away crying. She didn't talk to anybody. And then later, backstage when Sonic Youth was opening, he sidled up to her and he whispered into her ear and he said, I would have never picked on you in high school. 
and Love claimed it was like he had ESP or something. Like he knew exactly what what she had gone through and like what was traumatizing her. You know, they were alike in a lot of ways. And Kurt claimed himself that even though his band was taking off and it was becoming all of a sudden huge, you know, he wanted that kind of exciting relationship. And she caused trouble wherever she went because she was so brutally honest about everything. And and so unlike so many people that he knew. So fire and fire. So the stage was set. The band was about to release their first album on a major label. The release party was held at Rebar, this bar down uh, in Eastlake. The band had invited a bunch of their friends, but there were also a lot of people in suits, people from the major label, not really Nirvana's crowd. And there was no alcohol allowed at the party except for what was being sold at the bar. Um, And that wasn't a lot. I think people only had limited drink tickets or something. So they snuck in a bottle of Jim Beam. Everyone started getting smashed. They threw a food fight at the bar. And then they got kicked out of their own release party. So... You, you could see what was what was happening. You know, they were starting to get a little more in, into their own rock spirit and, and and a little more destructive and having fun with it. Nevermind got released in September and the band started a worldwide tour doing just crazy show after crazy show. Um, and every single week, Nevermind just kept climbing the charts. It hit the charts at 144, which is very respectable for a punk rock band back in 1991. Um, but eventually the album just kept climbing the charts. It hit 109, eventually it cracked the top 40 at 35, then it hit 17, then it hit 9, then it hit number 4. Uh, eventually in 92, the band, the, the album would hit number 1, supplanting people like Guns N' Roses and U2 and Michael Jackson, and all of a sudden there was a new paradigm. People wonder sort of why that happened, and it was a lot of things, some of which were sort of caused by the band and some of which were just the circumstances surrounding the kind of music that was starting to get popular at the time. For one thing, um, the band had done so few interviews for Bleach that they talked to their label and they were like, well, could you set it up? With, could you set us up with some more interviews? And the major label was like, all right, sure. And they would be doing, I think, up to six interviews every single day. Um, up until Nevermind released, and then every single review just went out at once. And then you couldn't hear about anything but Nirvana at the time. Um, it was one of those learning experiences where they really learned how to weed out interviewers and to to do magazines only if they had the band's best interest in mind. But whatever the case, you really couldn't get away from information about the band. So that really helped the band soar up the charts. Another thing was an iconic music video that they did um, where... You know, the iconic Teen Spirit music video. The lead single off of the album um, became huge because the video was circulating on MTV. It started underground and then just got more and more demanded. And uh, on top of the blitz and the uh, the media blitz and the interviews and the fact that the music was also really good. And finally, there, w- there was just there was a breaking point, you know. A lot of people have analyzed the music and the circumstances and, and what was going on around that time. There's a great breakdown in Michael Zared's definitive Nirvana biography, Come As You Are, where he talks about how there were a whole bunch of youths, like what would be considered Generation X, that had all gone through divorces, that were growing up in um, the very restrictive conservative Reagan times, who had just sort of had enough with life and, and needed some form of release. And Kurt's music was just sort of the kind of music that you could feel good in your pain 
when you were listening to it? There are a whole bunch of reasons and, and analyses, and, and people have done it over and over. There's no point going through it here. The point is, is that the music just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it got released. And crucially, the band didn't know what was happening until weeks after they started the tour. I mean, they were having their own struggles and, and strives uh, on tour. It was getting a little insane. They noticed that as the album was getting bigger, the backstage folks, which were their friends and some of their family and, um, and Courtney, obviously, and, uh, and people in the management all of a sudden started morphing slowly and steadily into, into A&R people and people who were part of radio and, and people who were in the industry started showing up. The crowd also changed very steadily from their traditional crowd, which were people who were fairly intelligent, um, punk-minded individuals to what became sort of the lowest common denominator, like frat bros, jocks, metalheads, um, people who, not not to speak for everyone, but a lot of people who didn't understand what Nirvana was trying to say in their music, and that really pissed off Kurt, you know, coming from that Olympia punk background and, and wanting to express something in his music and, and sort of making music in antithesis to this movement. So he started getting really obnoxious um, purposefully to piss off the crowd. This led to one of the more harrowing shows he played. Um, it was a show, I forget specifically where, but uh, he couldn't hear himself in the monitors and nobody was fixing the problem, even though he tried. He was also fucked up on a combination of alcohol and antibiotics for his bronchitis that a doctor prescribed for him. So he was just feeling insane. Halfway through the show, he began smashing his guitar into the monitor board and he broke both his guitar and the board. The board ended up belonging to the best friend of a bouncer that was providing security for the show. When the bouncer found out, he got super pissed. During their performance of Love Buzz, Cobain jumped into the audience. The bouncer, who was pretending to pull him back, started beating him up, pulling his hair and like doing damage to him, getting violent. Cobain figured this out and got in one good blow and then started it just became into a brawl uh, Dave Grohl leaped over the drum set and started beating the guy up they had to cool everybody down the show finished up and they unloaded and as soon as they were leaving there were a bunch of bouncers that were waiting outside waiting to beat up the band so they sort of had to run away it was just an instance where things were getting very very out of control and it was starting to get downhill when they were touring in Europe you couldn't get away from Smells Like Teen Spirit it seemed like they were playing it on the radio constantly um it's at this point that Cobain's mental state and his anxiety started to spiral. Because when you feel all that pressure, not only from your newfound crowd that you don't really admire that much, but from the people that do admire, that you know used to really like your music because of what it was saying and because of what, accept, what it was trying to say, you know, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic things. You're, you, he knew that he was losing that crowd and it really started to weigh on him. Um... And I think what ended up happening was he started to cope with it in a way that became extremely self-destructive. Um, it was also at this point that he just sort of fell head over heels with Courtney Love. It was one of those things where he was always sort of long-term relationship oriented and she just had whatever it is he was looking for at the time. So they got together. Eventually they would be married. The problem was that Cobain's heroin habit, his history with heroin, was finally starting to bite him. 
Um, he was starting to do heroin during the Nevermind tour before he was in a relationship with Courtney, and he stopped, but uh, he picked up the habit again because once the tour ended and uh, things had settled down, he was having such problems with his stomach pain, with his own anxiety, that he purposefully set out to start a heroin habit. So um, he knew that Courtney knew a dealer, so he persuaded Courtney to get him drugs. She would bring him the drugs. Eventually, he found a dealer himself, and he was doing a daily habit. He claims himself that he's like, I wanted to start a habit because this stomach pain was going to kill me, and if I'm going to die, I might as well just do heroin. You know, maybe flawed logic, but who who's to say the time? Um, so after Hole got back from tour, because that's the thing, Nirvana was on a European tour at the very same time that Hole was on a European tour, and Hole is uh, Courtney Love's band. Um, they were on tour at the same time, but at different places, so they would call each other and then hang out with each other when they were in the same area. Nirvana got back from tour first. After Hole got back from tour, Cobain talked to Love and was like, let's live together. You know, part of it probably was spurred by let's do heroin together. Um, so they first started sharing an apartment with Hole guitarist Eric Erlinson. But they were kicked out because of their drug habits. So they, because they had so much money and because Nirvana had so much money from Nevermind's release, um, they just started bouncing from hotel to hotel because they could afford it. They would just order room service all day and just do heroin together. And it was a little bit of like, kind of like a lost weekend, except it wasn't violent. They would just hang out together and, and do drugs. And um, I think, according to Kurt at least, they didn't have a lot of regret about it. They were just like, well, we just made a whole bunch of money, and uh, we might as well just stay kids forever, so we're just going to do heroin. The problem is that their habit, as heroin usually does, started to spiral out of control, and it was pulling the band apart because everyone assumed it was Courtney that, that got Kurt to start using again. This is obviously not what happened, but uh, the problem with Love is that it was her persona and the way that she conducted herself that got people irritated and agitated and and she was just one of those abrasive people that spoke her mind wherever she went and it caused her a lot of trouble um on top of everything um the band had to do another tour and kurt knew he needed to detox before then so he detoxed on heroin his stomach problems were acting up again uh the tour was going really badly for him he was um dealing with that stomach pain, which was exacerbated by the fact that he was taking detox pills. And even though the band was still, the, the machine was still chugging, they were still um, recording music videos and playing live performances and doing interviews. Uh, there was one point where he went to uh, a doctor in Australia and he got recommended uh, Fiseptone, which is the same thing as methadone in, um, in America. It's just under a different name. And over the course of time... I mean, the methadone would help, but it's because it's methadone and it's directly tied to the fact that he's detoxing on heroin. So that was not good. There was a day in the middle of tour where he forgot to take his pills and he convulsed at breakfast. And at that point, the band was just so... It was like a combination of worry and just frustration with his habit that they, they got further and further away. And the band almost broke up because of that. On top of everything, he just ended up getting re-addicted to heroin over and over and over again to the point where the stress of tour and the stress of, of wondering whether or not he's going to get assaulted by another stomach attack, he just kept doing it over and over for months, eventually raising it up to a 
dollar a day habit, and that detox did not go well for him. Considering that he was dealing with the upcoming birth of his kid and all of his bandmates hating him for what he was doing and all the people being uh, like antagonizing him. Um, believe it or not, this is not going to be the worst thing that happens to Cobain this year. That would come in the form of a an article that Courtney did for Vanity Fair in 1992. This will end up being the start of the downfall of both Cobains. Love found out she was pregnant. And as soon as she found out, she immediately started detoxing. And this is when it becomes a little bit of a problem because when you're around somebody, especially someone you love dearly more than anybody else, and they're addicted to heroin and you were also addicted to heroin, it becomes that much harder to to try and quit. So she was struggling. It's very possible that she used once or twice more when it becomes harmful to the baby. Who knows? We're never going to know. The problem was is that Vanity Fair wanted to do an article about Courtney Love. Um, they, there was this piece, I think Lynn Hirschberg was the name. Um, she wanted to do a piece about Courtney Love. Her manager urged her to do it. So Love was like, all right, I'll do the piece. She didn't really think too much of it. She was her own sarcastic, cynical, charismatic self. The piece ended up ruining them because during the piece, she misspoke and said that she had used heroin when she was pregnant. Um, and the problem with that is that Reagan was already on an anti-drug screed. You know, the, the country was all of a sudden in this conservative headspace where people were worrying about the younger generation. Never mind that it's actually scientifically proven that if you do heroin or a drug like that in the first trimester, it's not harmful to the baby. Um, it's not good, but it's, it's not explicitly destroying your kid. Um, that piece just ended up destroying them like love was all of a sudden under huge fire from everybody especially conservative critics the band was starting to get further and further away from them because they started to believe the vanity fair piece um kurt became extremely incensed at any of the media he became extremely paranoid and on top of him trying to quit heroin because she was pregnant and going through detox going through withdrawals um, having literally nobody to talk to because the band was so alienated and Chris and Dave didn't want to talk to him. Um, he almost committed suicide with love, and this was the day before they were set to play the Reading Festival in 1992. They held a gun together, and they were like, hold up. They decided not to do it. The day after was when they performed their iconic festival. You know, Widely considered one of the band's most legendary performances, Reading Festival. You can see the whole thing live on YouTube, in my personal opinion, I shouldn't really add my own opinion to a podcast that's about general facts about a person's life. I actually don't think it's their best set. I think they really underperformed because you listen to the hard audio and Cobain is actually playing really sloppily. And it may be a combination of not being able to hear himself in the monitors because it is an outdoor festival. And the thing about outdoor festivals is you don't, especially the technology back then, you really weren't able to hear yourself. He probably wasn't able to hear himself in the monitors because his vocal performance is also very shaky. He's not really able to hit some specific notes. Um, he also just sort of feels a little shell-shocked, maybe a little dead inside because of the circumstances surrounding the festival. Um, regardless, it's still recorded live. Considering what was going on, it's a great document. It showed that the band still had their power. 
So we're hitting the crucial moments in the early parts of 94, and we'll, we'll talk about his death in just a second, but there's one more thing that I think we should talk about about Cobain, and it's sort of these very revealing aspects about how he conducted uh, himself and um, how he would uh, talk to certain biographers. Again, a lot of this is covered in Azarid's book. Um, two specific instances. Um, the first was uh, Cobain's response to a planned Nirvana biography by these two British writers, Clark and Collins. Um, these guys were essentially making a biography about Courtney that sort of was on the same level as the excoriation she received after the Vanity Fair piece. Um, specifically, they would make up details like they had slept with uh, Dave, they had slept with Kurt, they interviewed Courtney's first husband, who she had only married for a matter of days. One of these things where it sort of became obvious to the couple that that this biography was just going to be a hatchet job about Courtney. So what Kurt did was he called the reporters, and Gold Mountain tried to put a kibosh on the thing, but Kurt personally called the reporters and just, it was maybe like an hour of this extraordinarily violent, vicious diatribe. He was claiming that he was going to sneak into their place and slit their throats and like calling them... Like, things I'm not going to repeat here, because they're really, they're really awful things, you know? And you, I guess you can just sort of imagine where Kurt's head was at the time. He was just so fed up with it, but he said some really awful misogynist things that they don't, they don't look good on paper. And the other thing is that he doubles down on it and says, like, you know, well, I don't give a shit. Like, he sort of, this biographer in particular was questioning, like, well, you know, these things that you extol, these these things are definitely you speak out against violence and yet here you are claiming that you're going to be violent against these people like he just sort of like according to Kurt he's a very big proponent of revenge so take that as you will you know I think that's that's a little bit of a detail that gets lost in the mix um so that's a very unflattering uh angle to Cobain perhaps but one other thing is that people who have worked with Cobain directly have noticed that he's not just like your typical rock band frontman who just is who just does the music and everything else. Cobain actually had a huge hand in the band's image. Um, there was a particular moment where um, uh, one of the tour managers, or I think it was it was one of the band's management was was talking to him, and he was already sort of on a heroin habit, so he was smacked up, but. Um, he was looking through different footage and images that they had just done for a photo shoot. And he was like, get rid of this one, get rid of that one. Um, run this piece, run this particular image for a week after we do the MTV one, but then it's going to lose its traction. Like, He just sort of had a sixth sense for how to maintain the band's image in a way that I think people that it worked with Nirvana had never seen before. So the guy was obviously very savvy and to an extent maybe more image conscious than we let on. We always have this image of this guy as somebody who had his pants around his ankles and just like had no idea what was going on the bigger he got. But I think maybe he was a little bit more in like big minded than maybe we thought previously, you know, or maybe it was just dumb luck. Maybe he just had a sixth sense for it and didn't really anticipate what was going on. So little more mysterious details that, that paint a fuller, perhaps more unflattering picture of Cobain than people would lead on. All right, so moment of, the moment of reckoning, this death. 
the band was already riding high after they had gotten back together again. Uh, it's sort of crazy to think that a band that the band almost broke up multiple times, not even just because of Cobain's drug habit. It was because of some royalty uh, arguments. Originally, they split the royalties three ways, but then afterwards, after Nevermind made it big, Cobain was like, "Well, you know, I did write ninety percent of this material. I should, I should, that should be reflected in my royalty checks." And the band was like, "All right, well, we'll let you do that. That makes sense." But then he tried to get more royalty for for everything pre Nevermind, and that pissed the band off. And then they almost broke up because of that. So there were tensions within the band that then got course corrected once they started um, thinking about recording in utero, and especially right after the Vanity Fair piece, because they realized how the world was against him. They recorded In Utero with Steve Albini. It was the record that Kurt always wanted to make. You can hear it in the record. And by the way, if you've never listened to Nirvana's music, I don't know why you wouldn't have, considering how ubiquitous they are as a rock band, but um, it's all still worth listening. Many people, they have their critics, and uh, it, it is very cringy to listen to Nirvana anywhere in Seattle. You know, you put, you put it on in any coffee shop and people are just going to be like, ugh, turn it off, you know. They're just sick of it. Um, but their music is still amazing for a reason. In Utero in particular is a great raw recorded. It, it definitely, it's one of those albums that had a lifespan before Kurt died and definitely had a, a different version of it after Kurt died because there's so many different instances that weren't necessarily intended to reflect his death but ended up doing so. Maybe because of coincidence, who knows? This is why his legacy has endured, because there's too many details that can be interpreted as such. So, they, the band was about to go on a European tour for In Utero. They had just hired Pat Smear, who is a guitarist in the punk band The Germs. He ended up being a, a really cool addition. He was hanging out with Francis, his kid, um, Francis Bean. Um, they were having a great time. But there must have been some dark undercurrent still running undercurrent because uh, I think he picked up a habit again, a drug habit, um, during the tour, probably as a way, maybe his stomach was acting up again. But they were in Rome after doing a show, and uh, Courtney had woken up and discovered that Kurt had taken an insane amount of Ruhypnol pills and doused it with champagne. And Kurt knew himself that you never want to drink alcohol with drugs because that's how everyone dies. He was rushed to the hospital. His stomach was pumped. He was in an, a coma for a little bit. And Courtney claims that that was his first intended suicide, at least that she knew of. Um, she staged an intervention. Kurt was extremely resistant to it. But eventually he agreed to check himself into a, a detox unit in Europe. So he stayed there for a couple of days. No one, Nothing seemed really remiss. Other than that, he was detoxing, and that's a terrible state to be in. And then he escaped the detox uh, unit. He caught a taxi back to Seattle. He, he took a taxi to the airport and then flew a plane from Europe to Seattle. Um, there are reports of him running into Guns N' Roses member Duff McKagan, who thought that something was wrong but didn't exactly sense anything specific and then after that there's not actually much known about uh Cobain's last days um we just know that he was at his home for a few days and then uh and then he decided off himself there's a fascinating uh 
doc, not a documentary. It's a little bit like a biopic. It was it was directed by Gus Van Sant, and it's called Last Days. It came out in the mid two thousands. Um, Kim Gordon's in it as a small cameo, um, and it takes a little bit of a poetic license with uh, Kurt's Last Days. But who knows? All we know is that someone who was working on the estate found Cobain's body on April fifth um, with a self inflicted shotgun wound to the face, and that was that. The case has been opened. Uh, later down the years. And the funny thing about, well, this is a constant we're discovering about about members of the 27 Club is that every single person's death, even if it's clear how they died, always has a little bit of an edge to it where people want to re-examine it and and figure out what goes on. There have been countless numbers of reports and a few high-profile documentaries um, claiming that Courtney Love was actually the person that killed Kurt. Which, you know what? Now that we know about Courtney Love and like, the struggles that she's been through and how after the things about Harvey Weinstein came out and she tried to warn people ahead of time and ended up getting blast, uh, blacklisted by the CAA, like, we definitely view her a little bit more sympathetic than we did back then, but there was so much against Courtney and the fact that she held herself as such an abrasive person that even though it makes sense that people want to believe that Kurt didn't take his own life, that he was just sort of kind of unassailable person and that and that Courtney was a demon woman who... who was a fame whore and, and, and wanted him dead. Like, it's a theory that's ground in latent sexism and also just, it just doesn't make sense, you know? Like, sure, w- none of us were there. The police will claim it's a suicide. It, and in 99, 99% it was, you know? I'm not, I'm not going to argue that there was anything else that happened, you know? But people will push their theories and... um Make of it what you will, but it was it was it was a senseless death that that nonetheless made a weird kind of sense, you know, considering the music. So the fallout was extraordinary. Um, they held a vigil in the Seattle Center a few days later. Um, Chris Novoselic and Courtney, and I don't think Dave, none of the none of the people that were closest to him were at the vigil, but Chris did a, a taping of a, a farewell message, and uh, Courtney had her own infamous uh, farewell message within which she read uh, Kurt's suicide note. She later gave out some of her clothes. Um, She visited the vigil herself and gave out some of his clothes. Um, And that was that. Like, the grunge movement continued. Um, Bands still, I mean, uh, labels still started signing alternative rock bands uh, left and right because they wanted another Nirvana. The success of Nevermind was so profound that label mates literally didn't know what to do about it like it was like a duck and cover thing so ever since then um there was a huge wave of bands and and granted there were some great bands that would never have received the attention they did if it weren't for nirvana's presence a lot of bands that would later be known as the early indie movement in america the the burgeoning underground um and of course courtney love figured out how to deal with the grief herself you know in ways that were both extremely self-destructive and outwardly destructive She's still dealing with it now, probably. Um, you know, this is a Seattle-based podcast, and a lot of the music that people play nowadays, uh, whether or not they're outwardly admitting it, is is in a sense because of or influenced by Cobain's legacy. So it's it's a little hard to talk about his own, what he's done for music objectively when you're part of that scene, even if you're not from Seattle. So... Um, it's one of those things where he's he was martyred a little bit, but I mean, who knows? Uh, 
death will do that to you. Will will put you in a position where, especially because there was so much wasted potential in the band. They had a fourth album in the works. They were after the unplugged sessions. Um, they seemed like they were going in a, in a weird, wild new direction. Um, maybe he never got the time, or the the the. the I mean, he could have made an ass of himself, really, when it came down to it. Any Anything could have happened that could have made him less of a worshipped icon. Um, dying so young meant that his legacy was frozen in whatever images and videos that got posted. And um, to this day, kids who... Disenfranchised youth are still discovering their music and, and being influenced by it. So it's one thing, you know. When Cobain died, it sort of did start to cement... Even though... Jim Morrison and, and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix all died within a two-year period. It, the theory of a 27 Club didn't really cement until one of these guys had taken his life so purposefully. Because it, it, it sort of cemented the theory that rock and roll kills or that people will die because of its influence, even though a lot of people were thinking rock was on its way out before Nirvana hit the mainstream. I'm going to reiterate this again. Rock and roll never killed anybody. Cobain already had a heroin experience and had several stuff. It, it was a way for him to cope with his daily life, and certainly being so famous didn't help. But, I mean, people saw it when they interacted with him. They knew that he wasn't long for the world. And maybe that's speaking retrospectively, but... Um, it's... You know, I've, I've stated about most of his life, there's still a lot of really awesome details. Fascinating details, I should say. Maybe not awesome, but there are still details... You can really go down the rabbit hole with Cobain, um, and if you're feeling, if you're feeling a little bit like losing a piece of yourself, you can go buy his journals, which I always thought was a really dumb decision, to because that's just private shit, you know. Why would you want to read someone's private shit even if you were that obsessed with him? Um, I mean, that's not to, that's not looking down on anyone who uh, who who bought it and enjoys him, but you know. He has this weird sense of uh, hushed respect among people, especially around here, you know? Like, his image is so... He died specifically almost because he was trying to uphold an aesthetic and an ethos about his own music and about punk music in general, and it didn't really work out, and that's why he died. You know, some of that is covered in the suicide letter, but because of that, people are... They get weirdly defensive about his image, um, I remember an instance when Guitar Hero 5 came out where Kurt Cobain was put out as a playable character, but um, sometimes these characters uh, can only play the songs that they play, and you could use Kurt Cobain as an avatar for any song, and this includes not only strange representations of his, his profile in songs like Stevie Wonder and David Bowie, but also new metal and uh, post-grunge and general alternative music that that he sort of railed against and would have probably been mortified if it got popular or if he had known that it got popular. So people get very defensive about his image. Um, but, you know, punk is about having an ideal, you know? Uh, especially around here, we've mentioned that the, the PNWC is all about integrity and um, and making community out of out of being a loner and, and being misunderstood. And even though what happened to go Cobain and his band is a, was a freak occurrence that he didn't know what to do with, the music's still there, and uh, his legacy still remains. So 
anyway, I hope you guys uh, particularly enjoyed uh, listening to this one. It's uh, It went a little long, but there was a lot to talk about. So we're almost done. We've only got one more episode. Uh, the final episode is going to be about someone who died relatively recently. I think it's been... It'll be coming up on a decade, I believe. Um, Miss Amy Winehouse, a fascinating figure in and of herself. Um, she had her own publicized image, and uh, it's going to be really interesting to find out what exactly was going on behind the scenes uh, before her untimely death. So stick around for that. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure to check us out at tapedeckpodcast.com. Uh, after this series is going to end, we're getting right back to guesting. Um, we'll have an awesome episode on Cambodian rock and roll. Um, we've got an episode coming up about Blondie. These are all going to be fantastic discussions. So I hope you guys stick around for that. We'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.